When I come up to the front of the hall and evening on a retreat like this, I really enjoy taking a few moments just to, in a traditional way, pay my respects to the Buddha, whose remarkable teachings uh, have touched my life in ways that I can't imagine how my life would have been if I hadn't encountered them. And likewise, just acknowledging the in a way, the enlightened beings from the Buddha on down and equally Kuan Yin, the embodiment of compassion. And we've been speaking over these days, reflecting and practicing together. considering what the implications might be of our understanding of the way experience arises, the way things arise, the way we ourselves arise. And this practice that we're engaged in is very much concerned with exploring what it means to free this heart, this mind, this life from suffering to free, likewise, this world from bondage and limitation. And in the very heart of this process, we, we contemplate and we begin to see directly the emptiness of separation, the dependent arising of self and world together, not separate from each other. To understand this, profoundly and deeply. The absence of any boundary between what we call self and what we call other, what we call me and what we call the world. This understanding lies at the heart of all profoundly liberating spiritual wisdom and understandings. And there's a way in which sometimes we just feel the resonance, we've sensed in the, in the silence and the stillness that kind of softening, opening, dissolving of boundaries, a sense of fluidity of just how the very fact that we are affected by and affecting everything around us, it speaks to us more and more clearly and directly to our heart. And we begin to wake up more and more. To recognize that what we are is a part of something vaster, a part of a totality that in a sense we're not even just part of or connected to, but that what we are is this. The wholeness, the undividedness, of this and this that expresses itself in myriad ways that are all woven in together. Shantideva, a great teacher, mystic poet and scholar of the uh, I think sixth century in India, he he once observed, he said 
just as we see these limbs are a part of this body. How do we not see each body as part, each being as part of embodied life? As ourself in another form. And when we contemplate, when we reflect in this way, that all that we encounter is ourself, we could say, in another form, within, outside, around. It becomes also clear to us that what we do to others and to ourselves and to the world, what we do to others and the world, we also do to ourselves. So far as we care for others in the world, we care for ourselves. So far as we harm others in the world, we harm ourselves because we're not separate from them. And so far as we harm ourselves, of course, we also harm the world. So far as we care for ourselves, we also care for the world because what we're caring for is part of the world when we care for ourselves. John Francis, who was an African-American eco-activist, and he uh, witnessed a very tragic and destructive oil spill on the coast of, um, I think, California in America quite some years ago. And as a result, he renounced all of the use of fossil fuels in his life, and he spent his life walking. And his life continues, but he just walking. He said, I, I won't go in motorized transport from here. He became known as Planet Walker. It's his thing, and you can look him up. He's an amazing character, John Francis. One of the things he said, just so simply, he said, we are the environment. We're not in it, we are the environment. And it's so interesting, isn't it? You know, there isn't somewhere else. Not just time as a construct, but likewise space. There isn't somewhere else. There's no place that is a way to which you can throw something away. Because what we see and what we realize is that what we throw away comes back. And some of what we throw away is in the cells of our bodies and the cells of our children. Because there isn't a way. That's a concept, a construct that's not true. And so whatever we're putting out, whether the plastic that finds its way into the sea and the sea creatures and eventually in the food chain back to ourselves and our children, or whether it's the expressions of, of kindliness or of selfishness, whatever we put into the world comes back because if we're putting it into what we are, we're not putting it out there isn't any out to put it in except in the way we conceive and perceive so there's not only just now where past and future are constructed there's only here because anything we've called there is just 
a version or an expression of here. And the teachings of emptiness, the, uh, the seeing of phenomena, of manifest experience as empty, has as one of its risks the possibility that we don't truly give value and respect to things, appearing apparent things. And in the, the Judeo-Christian sort of tradition, there's a kind of a, a tendency I'm not saying it's universal towards, and this informs Western culture, but it's found in other cultures too, towards treating the world as base, as somehow not what's truly sacred, but somehow to be escaped from, somehow fallen or away from what is truly sacred. And this is a misunderstanding. John O'Donoghue, a poet and, could say, philosopher, teacher, he observed once, he said, there are no unsacred places, only sacred places and desecrated places, places that have been made de-sacred. There are no unsacred places. And that's not just about geographic locations. That's about the places we find ourselves. There is no unsacred places we could find ourselves except that places have been desecrated, desecrated, made not sacred by the way they have been looked at and viewed through the lenses of our culture and our history and our conditioning and our beliefs and our ideas and our identifications that say, no, not this. This is not of honor. This is not of value. This is not of beauty. But when we contemplate the emptiness of things, when we allow ourselves to be touched by it, it's not that they are without value or preciousness, or beauty. In fact, they are so much more clearly revealed as filled with this, overflowing with this. More obvious and easy to see, perhaps, in a newborn baby, or someone elderly and near to death, or a great tree, or a tiny flower. But as we see more clearly, the preciousness, the beauty. As Leela was saying last night, our sensitivity, our senses are cleansed and we see more truth, more depth. And the preciousness of what is to be seen, to be heard, smelled, taste, touches, cognized, it all reveals something blessed and sacred. Everything is of value. Everything is precious, it turns out. And this is why we practice, because we care. Because something in us recognizes there's something profoundly 
worthy of appreciation here in this life. And we might be frustrated by the lack of access to it or the patternings that obscure and distort the experience of it. But what causes in the end, I think, is that we know that there is this that is blessed, that is sacred, that is beautiful amidst this that is the ordinariness of the world, the ordinariness of a human life doing what it does. And yet so much of our culture fails to recognize and to honor and to respect that in relationship to other life forms and so-called what's called inanimate matter. Ways of being and living that are different to that which is predominant in our own. And ironically and painfully that, that lack of respect for other expressions of life because of course as we've been seeing there isn't other. It's actually not separate from what we are, that that also expresses itself in a kind of almost epidemic level in our culture of a self-critical, self-undermining, shaming or judging tendency. A loss of a sense or a lack of access to a sense of our own deep value, our authentic dignity. To respect human life and other life in all its forms is not something that happens when the culture emphasizes objectifying things, treating them as commodities, which in order to do so we have to hold them as separate and unsacred. We have to desacredize them by cutting ourselves off from, by looking at them as other. And when we begin to respect where we are and what we are, there's a natural quality of dignity, of uprightness expressed and embodied here. And it's beautiful. It's truly beautiful. And it's something that shines out amongst us as we practice, as we become just more simply present and open to where we are. And there's a natural appreciation that begins to grow in us, even if we're still having plenty of reactions that seem to go the other way. Because we do, of course. And we start to sense it and see it in each other. It's part of what uplifts us. And sometimes easier to see in another than ourselves. Animals and trees and landscapes have it effortlessly, this quality of a beautiful dignity. And likewise, indigenous human peoples and cultures that have not been completely dispossessed of their connection to their land. Mary Oliver writes in her poem, The Arrowhead, she says, the arrowhead, which I found beside the river, was glittering and pointed. I picked it up and I said, 
Now it's mine. I thought of showing it to friends. I thought of putting it, such an imposing trinket, in a little box on my desk. Halfway home, past the cut fields, an old ghost stood under the hickories. I would rather drink the wind, he said. I would rather eat mud and die than steal as you steal, than lie as you lie. And I find these words impact me, even having read them and shared them many times, that sense of how much in our culture has been stolen. And how much truth has been lost as a virtue and a value and a pillar of a healthy culture. And untruth has become the norm and expected in so many fields. It's like, oh, there's something deeply, tragically painful in this. And it seems to me that some of what we experience that we call sort of guilt and we call shame and that sort of like self-critical patternings that are, again, as I said, endemic in our culture, that they're not, again, really ours because there's a kind of almost a collective human cultural karma here where we've made ourselves the, or attempted to make ourselves somehow the pinnacle of, of creation, of evolution, of life, and treated as less than ourselves, all others, other cultures, other peoples, other races, genders, species, lands, whatever has been seen as other than the dominant has been made less than, has been seen as without value, treated without respect, exploited, destroyed. Peoples, animals, plants, ecosystems. But there isn't something else and there isn't someone else. And whatever we've put out comes back to us. So collectively, that attitude comes back to us as a profound sadness and grief and a, a strong tendency towards shame and towards guilt and towards anger which gets layered around the sense of loss and grief as a protection to stop it, an attempt to protect us, to stop us feeling the pain of that loss, that grief, that sadness, that dishonoring of our, our own heritage, of what we are, in fact, part of. And this sense of guilt, of shame, of anger, and we, of course, need to work with it in different ways and sometimes in, in process and in, in sort of healing relationships with different modalities that our culture has also established and developed. But sometimes, or some of it, it seems to me, part of working with this is understanding this, this may be the legacy of our cultural, psychological disconnect from nature and from life. It's not something we did personally. And all the things from our life it might focus on or center on, it's just finding those to pick up because there's an underlying recognition that something of the balance and the connection has been lost. And it expresses our 
collective human distress and pain and sorrow at what we've done and are doing to ourselves and the world and life. And we feel it. It's not self in the sense that, oh, it's about me in the end. Although we may need to work with the elements that are ours to take care of because that's always the case with any patterns and processes that we can see. They're not self, but we still need to take care of how they show up in us, through us and with us. But I find this gives a, what for me feels like a helpful and a useful orientation to hold that whole territory of judgment, of criticism, of anger, whether directed outwardly to others or inwardly to ourselves. And what we find underneath it, of course, when we soften into it and feel a little bit below what is there, so often sorrow, grief and pain that the anger, the judgment, the criticism is somehow trying to protect us against by pushing away, pushing at that which we have believed or imagined to be the cause of that sorrow, that grief, that pain. And there's a deep sadness in us, in so many of us. And the sadness belongs to us all too. And it calls us to healing. It asks us, as pain does, as that which hurts, ask for our attention to it. Not our disregard, not turning away from or fixing it, but actually giving attention to it. The sadness that causes us to healing because the sadness is born of the fragmenting of our wholeness at its heart, at its core. And the healing that we seek and that we need and that we long for is the re-inhabiting, the rediscovering, the re-imagining and honoring of the wholeness that also is the holiness, the sacredness of our life and all of life. So, as I was reflecting a little this afternoon, just that acknowledging that actions that seem to come from selfishness or disregard that are harmful, apparently without care, that when we look, we might see that in ourselves, oh, yeah, I was trying to take care of what I thought was mine to take care of, and I failed to take care of what I'd imagined was not mine to take care of. And that way we've split and separated into self and other or to me and mine and what is not that. And in that separation, in that split, in that division, in that breach of our wholeness, the deeper pain is the, is the breach of the holiness, the loss of the sense of the sacredness of this. the wholeness of this. And where in others we can't see or make sense of it. It is the deeper pain where others seem to be intentionally or purposefully causing harm 
in the service or the furthering of their own advantage or agenda. We may not see on the surface emotional deprivation, spiritual poverty does not show always on the surface. But when we understand the emptiness of separateness, that there is no fundamental truth to separation, we see that all harm is self-harm. That all hatred is self-hatred. And perhaps we start to care for not just bringing an end to the harm in whatever way we can because we wish to stop the harm being caused but we include the cause of the harm in what needs healing and caring for because it's simply the movement of, of greed and hatred passing through and patterns and structures that have become industrialized in our world and overwhelming to individuals who've been subject to them. And at the heart of it, that profound loss of human sacredness, dignity and value. And there's a story about a a much-loved and honoured, revered teacher. And his name translates as empty cloud, and for some strange reason it's just disappeared out of my head. Tsun? You? Anyway, I know it, so it's not on my notes. But I don't know it in this moment. Anyway, empty cloud. Who lived in... Um, in China in the turn of the 19th century. And he lived to be over a hundred years of age. And he was a greatly respected master, but he was also seen as a real threat to the authoritarian regime of the time because so many of the people loved him and listened to him rather than to the political authorities. And so a group of thugs were sent and beat him. Almost to death. And his students came to him and they said, Master, Master, we see your body is broken. Please do not feel you have to stay here for us. It must be so painful for you. If you need to go now, you can go with our blessing and our gratitude. And we know you have the power to stay here because of your great spiritual development. But don't feel you have to do it for us. It's such a beautiful response, it seemed to me. And then... Oh, I just, his name's on the tip of my tongue. <laughs> Empty cloud responded. He said, you know, I'm not staying here for you. I'm staying here because I don't want those people who beat me 
to have the karma of my death on their hearts. Whew. That's somebody who knows something about life. To stay in the, the pain of a broken body. To protect those who broke his body. Nothing in that to me suggests that so far as he could have avoided or protected himself from being hurt, he wouldn't have done that. And nothing in what I'm suggesting here is to take away from the real importance of saying no in the face of threat, of harm, or some form of extractive demand being imposed upon us. We can feel compassion for while acting robustly to protect against harm. Again, understanding that we are connected here. And we may see the possibility of forgiveness as we were exploring for others and also for ourselves, understanding that actions arise from conditions and seeing ultimately that there is no separate, fixed, independent self there who acted to condemn or to forgive it's actually conditions have come together giving rise to this particular expression in this form in this time there is no separate fixed actor to be found beyond the actions and the expression of the actor in this moment and in another moment differently Wasn't there that line from the song in the 80s? And Sting, I think it was, lead singer once of the police, talking about the possibility of mutually assured destruction, a nuclear war. And he said, wouldn't it be a foolish thing to do if the Russians love their children too? It's like even amongst those who we might find it the hardest to open our hearts to, if we look closely we may see that their hearts are open in some places, but perhaps not in others. And it's here important to really differentiate what we might talk about as anger which as I said this afternoon is that kind of energy that tries to protect but disregards the impact on what has become other or what has become without seen as without value and so therefore can harm without care and this is to be distinguished from the fierce and forceful at times compassionate energy that arises to protect against harm which is not actually creating a separation but that understands that by protecting against harm you're not just protecting those who are most apparently being harmed but you're also protecting those who are causing the harm from the consequence of their action which will come to them one way or another. 
that you are protecting both in your action to stop the harm. And sometimes we need to work with anger to allow ourselves to feel it, to let it move through us, to find a safe place for the sometimes explosive energy it has to be felt, to be known, perhaps to be expressed. as part of the pathway to releasing the fear and the shame that's also often locked into or wrapped around that kind of protective energy. That means we don't really do it unless we can't help ourselves and therefore we never do it consciously. And whenever it turns up, there's a kind of suppressive shame or pressure on anger and has to push through and so it only ever comes out explosively and harmfully. And that as we get to know it, we can say, okay, what if I let this come up gently or consciously and feel? Whereas, ah, this quality of protection has a wholesome and beautiful expression that is fierce and fiery. But not harmful. Though it might be scary. And judgment in a very similar way to anger, the way I might be, the way I, I tend to use it when I'm talking here at least, or we use it, judgmental reactions which are rejecting, which are diminishing, which are suppressive or oppressive, that we feel as painful when directed towards us by others or by ourselves. It's a form of anger that's trying to push away, suppress, control, diminish. It's different to what we could understand of what we might also use the word for judgment, which is actually pointing to what we call discernment. To the discernment, the, what in the Buddha's teaching he talks about is discerning wisdom, understanding what is skillful and what is not. And it's like seeing that, ah yes, this we need to discern. But that doesn't mean that we judge or diminish the person whose action is unskillful. We just see, oh, there is blindness. There is, and actually blindness isn't a good word here because I don't want to make it pejorative. For people who are unsighted, that wouldn't feel right. So it's unconscious, unaware, unawake. And that's what's going on. And what's interesting is both with anger and with judgment, and part of why they're attractive and hard to let go of is that they generate a really substantial, strong, and seemingly powerful sense of self. That's part of what they do. There's this way in which we inflate, or we solidify, or we harden, we become very certain of ourselves and anger there's this immense certainty of knowing I'm right and they're wrong and judgment equally I know this is how it is as soon as we allow nuance in maybe anger doesn't really have a foothold so it pushes that out it's a bit like the Incredible Hulk really that kind of mythic image of really big, really powerful really scary not that smart Because anger, of course, ends up easily hurting 
what it cares about. Not to judge it again, but that's what we see. That's why we need to handle it. And we see as we deepen and practice that the sense of self, when it appears that way, it's constructed. It's ultimately a fabrication. We can see through it as we become more familiar with it. And it's, it's empty. It's not solid. There's this beautiful teaching by Chang Tzu where he talks about what would happen if we were on the river on a boat and someone else would come along in a boat and they would run into our boat and we'd yell and swear and da 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 and he'd say but what if it happened in the dark and the boat hit you and you start yelling and then you see huh there's no one in the boat who are you yelling at just a boat ran into your boat So we learn to empty out the construct of self that places itself in opposition to other by contemplation, by practice. And what we can notice in that place, and this is something again, endemic as in you know it's so prevalent in our culture that we almost don't notice it but what happens with anger and judgment is that we withhold a sense of value from that person or thing which we judge or are angry about we don't mean to we might still believe we love them or care about them, but in the actual moment and expression of being caught or carried by anger or judgment, we've lost touch with that. There's a disconnection and a disregarding, or sorry, a disconnecting or a disregarding, whatever that is. While at the same time the attention is pushing at and so when we see that that's something that we're doing in effect to what we are. It's like the water we're swimming in is the recipient. More than that even. More close than that of this. We, we seek to transform it. We seek to work with it. Not out of a judgment or an anger towards our anger and our judgment, but because, huh, it doesn't quite make sense when we understand the emptiness of things, the non-separateness of life manifesting in its different forms, not always skillfully. And in this we start to give again respect And in doing so, as we offer respect, we actually equally are respecting ourselves. Because when we see the emptiness of separation, we see disrespecting other is to disrespect ourselves, 
respecting other is to respect ourselves. We can't respect just part of what is indivisible. It doesn't work. And in that respect, we find the natural dignity of our value, of our blessedness, our preciousness. That the very place we inhabit, even in our confusion and our reactivity, is nonetheless not a place that is unsacred and that is refound and remade as sacred through our attention and care, through our contemplation. And no thing is left out of this. No thing is held back from this. In the process of opening into life, into wakefulness, we're asked to leave nothing out. We're asked to hold nothing back to place nothing outside of what we care about and what we're interested in. And in this we start to feel the wholeness of it. This, const this constantly arising conscious sensitive responsiveness. The empty insubstantial nature of phenomena is one way we see it. But when we see it this way, the question asks in ourselves, asks us, well, so if that's so, who am I? What is this? What am I? What is this? Who thinks? What thinks? Who knows? What knows? Who cares? What cares? And it's really interesting. We say, who thinks that? Can you feel it's kind of got a bit of a, put down on it? It's, who thinks that? And you go, what thinks that? Oh, that's a very different quote. Who knows? It's like, what knows? Or who cares? It's like, but what cares? When we use the frame who, it kind of has a sense of pushing away those deepest questions, trivializing them. Or ridiculing them. When we use the frame what it opens the inquiry. What is it that thinks? What is it that knows? What is it that cares? And this interest calls us, speaks to us, invites us. I was really touched last night listening to Leela speaking and the moment of recalling the... Uh, time we met a long time ago uh, and as I was reflecting I remembered something I wrote from that time that I thought I'd like to share it came to me in my practice And I haven't written it down for myself, so I'm really hoping it's going to come. <laughs> if you think it is your face that you see in the mirror, consider this. Is it there now 
when you're born into a world made of glass. It's easy to be caught up in reflections and cut by the edges. But when you see with your heart, you don't need a mirror to see your own true face. And when you can look into the mirror, neither deceived by the reflection nor distracted by the images, then there is just seeing your own true face. The Buddha's profound and blessed teaching points, points us, calls us to our own discovering and realization of what he offered and what the wise women and men and human beings of all genders have discovered and shared in all times. This dharma is truly a blessing. And I'd like to, if I can, make it work, finish with a piece of music. Well, it's a song, in fact. One of my favorite prophets, Leonard Cohen. And in it, he's speaking of his journey and discovery, it seems to me, very clearly and beautifully. So I can't guarantee this is going to be working, but it looked like it was going to work a little while ago, so let's hope.
out of wit the nameless makes a name for one like me I'll try to say a little
May we all come to know for ourselves the profound, the ordinary, the blessed and the sacred simplicity of just where we are and what we are, just as we are. And likewise, the blessed, profound, sacred simplicity of all things. For our own well-being, for the welfare of all beings and the well-being of all that lives and all that is. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.